You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Israel opens up another front against the United Nations. Former allies of former US President Donald Trump usher him repeatedly under the bus, and Italy puts the frighteners on foreign film productions. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Alessio Patalano will discuss the day's big stories and we'll meet the Iraqi director Maysoon Pachachi as her new film Our River, Our Sky is released. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and founder of China Dialogue, and by Alessio Patalano, Professor of War and Strategy in East Asia and Director of the Japan Programme at King's College London. Hello to you both. Hello. Good afternoon. Um, Isabel, you have recently been in Turkey, as I understand it, attempting to reform Europe. <laughs> well, sort of thing, yes. Um, at least attempting to understand Turkey um, and talk about the way the world is changing that's uh, which was interesting actually there was it, it was it was uh, a while since i'd caught up on where turkey thinks it's going i think no longer did believing you come up, did you come up with any answers because i think a lot of people <laughs> yeah. are quite intrigued well, by I, I this think, one i think they've they're pretty um convinced that they'll never get into the european union not hugely pleased about that um and mm. erdogan seems set to stay because the opposition mm. is in such a mess fighting each other more vigorously than they're fighting erdogan so i think you know look just ask erdogan where turkey's going and that's that's where it'll go well that's a cheerful thought um alessio incredible though this sounds and indeed is is it is the case is it not that you are basically tomorrow going on a day trip to new delhi um, uh, yes, indeed, I am. And I'm from there, daily trip to daily, then moving on to Beijing right after that. Um, you know, when um, uh, when when you are in teaching term, as I am at the moment, um, you have a pretty tough choice because in between uh, two slots of teaching, you try to, to allocate all your traveling time, uh, so, which means that you start having some pretty interesting uh, 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 travelogues um, all together. So that's have you bought to... one of those insane rounds? the world tickets where you go to like New Delhi then Beijing and then on to I don't know somewhere in Alaska Toronto let's put it this way I'm reading with my children bedtime story at the moment the uh, Jules Verne the uh, you know the, the, round, <laughs> the world the ground tour in 80 days and I'm thinking like that's easy <laughs> done that been there <laughs> so when that that, when that sounds like pretty easy peasy in, I think that's 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 where you stand really. in fairness Phineas Fogg was in a balloon um, which is slower uh, but we will start uh, probably with the fracas underway between Israel and UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. Israel has demanded Guterres' resignation and announced that it will refuse visas to UN staff after Guterres made remarks attempting to contextualise the massacres perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th, in which at least 1,400 people were murdered. Guterres mused that it had, quote, not happened in a vacuum and returned to what, referred rather to what he described as 56 years of suffering 
suffocating occupation. In the last few hours, the Secretary-General has tried to smooth this over, reminding that he had also condemned Hamas and described their actions as appalling and unjustifiable. Um, Isabel, first of all, uh, Guterres did indeed uh, say all of that about Hamas. He did use the words appalling and unjustifiable. Um, Is Israel's current anger at his further remarks uh, therefore justified? I think there's a lot of, you know... um cosmetic shouting having I, I don't I look I'm sure the Israeli ambassador to the UN has no choice but to, to be an ultra defender of the most extreme Israeli position but the fact is Gutierrez you know prefaced his remarks saying no injustice to the Palestinians mm-hmm. could justify the appalling attacks by Hamas he said it very clearly mm-hmm. um, and and I feel that at this point you know that has to be sayable, just as it has to be sayable that infants in incubators are not terrorists and they are going to die if there's no power and no water in 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 Gaza. You know, I, I think that this idea that whatever Israel now does is justified by the appalling attacks is simply going to put Israel in an even worse position than it has been. Uh, All of which is doubtless the case. Uh, But Alessio, I think a lot of Israel's anger does come from a place of feeling like whenever something like this happens to anybody else, and it does happen to other people in other countries, you don't get an attendant chorus of, well, yes, but... Uh, in the same way that you do when something like this happens to Israelis. Yes, I would say Guterres was very clumsy. He could have uh, phrased um, his remarks differently. This is not the first time. I mean, let's face it, this is the Secretary General just a few weeks ago was uh, openly saying to uh, international media that the UN is powerless. Now, that might be true, but if you are the Commander-in-Chief of Powerless House, you may want to phrase it differently. Um, so, so, So in that sense, I think particularly how, considering how delicate the situation is, particularly in light of what we've seen in terms of this um, moral equivalency, uh, subtle, implicit or more directly um, about um, if, we condemn, if we condemn one, we have to condemn the other. I think these are two very different things. Um, and that kind of context um, has to be respected. So when he Khan turns around and it says, well, the attacks did not happen in a vacuum. You can say whatever it is afterwards, right? But that has nothing to do with the protection of uh, civilian Palestinians or indeed what Israel is doing. The emphasis is squarely on providing context to the actions that Hamas conducted on the 7th of October. And... In that sense, you are playing precisely the point you are making. That's why I think um, here this is not about, um, well, condemning a mass whilst at the same time uh, f- placing us to in a play, in a context of reflection of what is happening in 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 Gaza at the moment. No, no, no. This was reference directly to the attacks themselves and try to bring context. That is a clumsy reference. Yeah, but the point is that the the um, that the Israeli ambassador is using it to close down any discussion of what is happening in Gaza at the moment. I mean, he's riffing off the the remarks of a secretary general who is, after all 
responsible for you know, the, the massive humanitarian effort um, that is, you know, now under extraordinary pressure in Gaza because of the actions of the Israelis. So I think that, yeah, fine, call him clumsy. That doesn't, that should not provide an excuse to close down discussion of what is now collective punishment of an, with a gr- the suffering of a great many innocent people. And about which, Isabel, there is increasing collective criticism. There are reports that the leaders of the EU and indeed the UK are going to press for a humanitarian pause uh, in the bombing of Gaza. That international criticism, though, which, and you're right, this may be an attempt by Israel to deflect from it, however clumsy Guterres's remarks may have been. But is that criticism, do you think, part of the reason that, and you know, we are now 18 days on from the original attacks of October 7th, we still have not seen the anticipated ground offensive in Gaza? Do you get the impression that a lot of Israel's allies are saying, seriously, you can't do this? Well, I think they've been saying it it's semi-publicly, actually, mm. saying, well, are you sure this is this is a, a useful course of action? Because even if you, you know, at the end of however long it takes and however many deaths it is and however much opprobrium you attach um, to, uh, you attract to the exercise, what then? And there hasn't been an answer to what then, just as there wasn't an answer to the situation that Gutierrez was, you know, the context that Gutierrez was was uh, was invoking. You know, you you all right? You take out Hamas, you own Gaza. Mm. You know, are, are we back where where with an Israeli occupation of Gaza? Do you have another plan? And Netanyahu, Netanyahu, after all, you know, whose whose hard line was justified in by the idea that it was necessary to keep Israel safe, is now desperately trying to salvage his own reputation and his own position. I think with you know, not much long-term success, in my view. Alessio, just finally on this, is it yet clear what Israel's endgame, what Israel's big idea is? I mean, Israel clearly has said that it intends to destroy Hamas, and that is not necessarily in itself uh, an unreasonable or undesirable objective. But do they really have a clear idea so far as we can tell as to precisely how they go how they're going to do that i don't think the current military operations are the uh, the 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 if you want the 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 master plan to, to provide the definitive answer to that question uh, partly because um again it depends very much on how uh, you you can think, and I don't think nobody in their own reasonable mind can imagine that militarily you can find a solution right now to the complete eradication of Hamas. Um, so I think that plan is still being formulated. At the moment, I think what they're trying to do is to eliminate uh, what um, have been the fundamental pillars that um, enabled the type of coordinated large-scale attack that Hamas was capable of conducting on the 7th of October, uh, destroy the fundamental um, infrastructure that, that that gave them the opportunity to do so. But then I think something else will replace the current military activities. I don't think the, the, the land invasion will, if it ever happens, will sort of provide results. But I think, however, what seems clear from the beginning of the very first statements um, is that Basically, wants to go back to a pre-2005 situation. Now, whether that happens or not, it says very much about the point that Isabel was making about Netanyahu. Because here, I mean, regardless of the fact that 
I think if if you have a UN Secretary staying on the topic, if you have a UN Secretary General that is very clumsy and unparticularly articulated, it should resign because it needs to be better than that, precisely because of what the UN stands for. Now, having said that, the different question of Israeli responses in the current situation will depend very much on the fate of Netanyahu. And in that context, you could say, well, Partly we are where we are today because of how Netanyahu's government has handled relationship there for quite some time. Well, let's move along somewhat. It is a confident Chinese cabinet minister who leaves the country at the moment and or a confident Chinese leadership who lets them go. Earlier this week, Defence Minister Li Shangfu was officially sacked two months after vanishing from public life and former Foreign Minister Qin Gang, who was sacked in July, was also punted off the State Council. Current Foreign Minister Wang Yi, I hope you've been taking notes, will escape the carnage later this week to visit Washington, D.C., where he will meet US President Joe Biden and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Um, Isabel, first of all, and this is where it's about to serve you right for being a professional China watcher, do we have in fact the least idea of what is actually occurring in Beijing? <laughs> um, there are various interpretations of this, Anu. Um, uh, so no is what you're telling us. Well, you could, you could view it as the kind of, a bit like the you know last days of Stalin, where the degree of para- regime paranoia is such that you, know, you just have to keep getting rid of people because that's what the system does. And it is noteworthy that 10 years in, you know, the degree of purging that is going on within the party, it's not letting up and not letting up in terms of seniority. Not just the defence minister, rather recently appointed, replaced with a naval man, um, but also the entire rocket force got decapitated. So, you know, a bit of a worry. Um, the, uh, the, The Late, the ex-foreign minister, who previously was ambassador in the United States, uh, seems to have a personal indiscretion, uh, a, a, an affair with a television uh, personality and possibly a child. Um, but, you know, that wouldn't normally be enough, exactly. uh, considering well, I mean, the yeah. conduct who, of most of... Uh, who among us? Well, yeah. indeed. Um, uh, and certainly <laughs> who among them. Exactly. That's the way it would. <laughs> so, so whatever's up. Anyway, Wang, Wang Yi um, is is off to uh, plough the furrow of uh, US-China relations and quite stony at the moment, that furrow. Well, if I can persist with that metaphor somewhat, uh, Alessio, do you you get the sense that that there are efforts to remove the rubble from that furrow and instead sow it with seeds which will in due course bl- uh, you know where I'm going with this, I, yeah, I, I just can't be bothered anymore. Uh, because we, we have also seen uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom meeting with Xi Jinping um, earlier today in fact in Beijing. Do you, get a, do you get a sense that on both sides there is an understanding that we should probably be getting on better than we have been given, you know, the general state of everything. I think there is. Uh, at the same time, there is also, this is happening against the background and a context which, so it, let's put it this way. Um, the 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 headline is is very much both whether you are in the National Security Council in the United States or indeed within the sort of top leadership in party in Beijing. There is a clear understanding. We should be in a better place than we are now. I think everybody would agree with that, right? However, you've got, A, a domestic political landscape in both countries that is very problematic at the moment. I mean, that is a massive issue because it's a massive issue in the sense that the usual conduct that exists um, in Beijing and in D.C., where people know who to talk to and where to get a sense on 
okay, so we know we should be in a different place. How do we get there? And by talking to all your contacts, you get a better nuanced understanding of where you could go. At the moment, this is not really the type of play that you can use because there are so many cards up in the air. Um, there is all sorts of like a conspiracy and, and, and paranoia and backstabbing. And then, you know, American domestic politics is where it is at the moment. So none of this really is helping. I think there is also um, a genuine... Um, uh, element that uh, adds complexity to this mix, and that is the other understanding that is parallel to the one about, uh, yes, we should be in a different place, but there is the one whereby relationship um, uh, between the United States and and, and China is not going to go back to where it was uh, circa 2012. It's not going to happen. Right, uh, there is this this uh, call it the risking, call it uh, was diversification, call it whichever way you want. Mm. But there is an understanding that competition with elements of contestation, whether in finance, whether in economy, whether in in advanced sectors of technology, AI, quantum, you name it, it's going to stay. And so there is no real script on how to try to come back from where you are without being able to go where you were before. All of this happening in a context where, in domestic context, there is a serious concern. I mean, you know, in July, August, I think, July, end of July, we were all concerned because in the same week you had the foreign secretary disappearing in China, then most of the rocket force leadership disappearing. It's like, hang on a second, are you actually telling me that? The guy we should talk to if we were worried about nuclear weapons in China not being under control, everybody's disappeared. That is an enormous element of instability there. Um, Isabel, one subject just finally on this one that is almost certainly going to come up is uh, Russia's ongoing onslaught against Ukraine, uh, which obviously China seemed broadly supportive of at least early on when Putin appeared to have sold Xi Jinping on the idea that he could knock this over in a weekend. It wouldn't be all that big a deal. Uh, We are grinding towards two years later. Do we suspect that China's patience with Russia's adventure might be ebbing at this point? Well, the downside for China... China is that it makes it unpopular in Europe. But there are upsides. Mm. It's getting an awful lot of cheap energy, a mm. lot of oil. It's mm. it's um, Putin is rather desperate for a new gas pipeline to be built, and the Chinese are hanging tough on that. It's also tying down the United States and, and its allies' um, military resources in Ukraine. So that's quite good if you happen to be eyeing a piece of real estate just across the short um, sea from uh, from where you are. Um, you know, and you can pretty much, you know, you don't, if you don't want Putin to fall because you don't want mm. that uncertainty, you have a very long border and that you don't want to have to defend. And you're looking at the United States elections coming up with a least a chance that Trump will come back and mess up NATO, stop supporting Ukraine. You know, you could be in a worse place, actually, if you're China, mm. because you're not, you've, you've managed to handle this without getting your hands too dirty. Mm. A little bit of, you know, dodgy trade going on, um, a few items turning up in Russia that probably shouldn't. But, you know, they haven't really been punished for that. Mm. So I'm, I think it's, you know, mm. given given that it happened and given that it's sort of 
bogged down. I, if I were if I were Xi Jinping, I'd probably be looking on the upside mm. rather than. And after all, you know, my best friend um, Putin has just been in Beijing again to celebrate ten years of the Belt and Road Initiative, mm-hmm. and uh, everything was just sunny as ever it was. Well, indeed so. And now on the lighter side of the news, the legal woes besetting former US President Donald Trump grow ever more grim. This week, and it is only Wednesday, his former fixer has testified against him in a civil fraud trial. Yet another one of his lawyers has pleaded guilty to trying to fiddle the 2020 election and flipped on him. And his former chief of staff has reportedly grasped him up to a federal grand jury after being granted immunity from prosecution. While the case against Trump in New York is not the most serious, it is certainly the funniest. Uh, Cohen testifying that Trump routinely exaggerated the value of his properties to secure favourable loan terms. Um, Alessio, if this was broadly happening to you, if this was your current status before the courts of a a given country, how concerned would you be? It strikes me, and I'm not a lawyer, that this is not going well. No, it definitely isn't. But at the same time, if you are if you are Donald Trump, would you ever be concerned? I mean, what, what would make you concerned? I mean, you know, that, that's a, that's a genuine question. I don't think there is anything that would concern you because if you had some sort of moral compass, right, you wouldn't be there. At you know, he, he does have a moral compass, Alessio. This week, we saw himself comparing himself to Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Exactly my point. <laughs> I think that is, and, is and that one ar- step down or up from comparing yeah. himself to Jesus Christ, and, which and, I believe and, he also did. And who can argue with that? <laughs> so, so, but but in, but in this sense, I think he, here's the thing: um, is this the final nail on the Donald Trump coffin? I'm not necessarily sure. He's looking really bad, but. This is the classic situation whereby no matter how many legal cases uh, to try to bring him to justice you put in place, he will probably manage to get out of it by the skin of his teeth and and, and out, of, out of 91 charges in four different indictments that that i mean that, that would, be, would take some doing at the same time it also sort of it depends very much where the threshold for um uh uh uh, uh transforming if you want uh, the court case into something real and teethy to a point that he, he would not be able to turn around and claim a martyrhood politically he's been you know persecuted by others i think the real risk with all these legal proceedings is that and if unless they can actually bring him down they will only result into reinforcing his political aura with a type of baseline. Mm. And at the moment, if I'm honest with you, the interesting question is the Republican Party is behaving in such a way that not even Trump, I think, would be able to muster the type of votes to create a serious challenge because even the sort of more traditional Republicans, they're completely lost in translation. I mean, even at the moment with uh, with the Speaker's nomination, it is becoming an absolute clown show uh, that, that without with no end in sight. So in that sense, I think I'm, I'm almost becoming agnostic. We, we've seen Trump bouncing back from all these sorts of legal proceedings all the time. Um, I think the bigger question is, is there any way for the Republican Party to be considered a serious challenge in the coming election, provided that they are absolutely eroding the traditional power base of the, of the Republican Party with no real leadership at the steer. 
That is the more important question in this context. I mean, they may have calculated that there are enough of their fellow angry yahoos at large in the American electorate to get them uh, back over the line. And that certainly does seem to be Trump's uh, presidential election strategy to the extent that he has one. But on that front, um, Isabel, it it is talked about as a non-zero possibility, the idea that Trump is eventually convicted of something quite serious. He can't end up in the clink over this New York thing, which is a, a civil fraud trial. But that case in Georgia is starting to look extremely rickety for him. And do you get the sense that the United States has really properly got to grips with the idea of what might happen when the judge's gavel comes down and someone says, we'll take him away? Uh, I think there is no plan for this, Mm. um, because how could there be? I mean, New York, it it could cost him a lot of money. That Mm. would hurt. Um, Florida and Georgia. Mm. I mean, Florida maybe with a different judge, but it's a really shocking case. I mean, Mm. and the detail of it is just Mm. staggering. And Georgia, you know, I think there is a case that, that could well go very bad. But what you do? I mean, actually, he could still go to jail and run for president. That's that's we, one we, thing. And, we, we, and, we have we have true. talked about this. It's been done. Eugene <laughs> yeah. Debs did it in 1920. Lyndon yeah. Larouche in 1992, I think. <laughs> He's got his um, security detail to be accommodated. So no, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Trump is such a phenomenon that that there are no rules for this, and and I can't imagine uh, what the scenario would be when the gavel comes mm. down and he. He's sentenced to 10 years for any of the 91 possible offences. See, I, I, for one, Alessio, am hoping that the, the donument of this ends with him and his children all in court frantically trying to shop each other. <laughs> Which is not to, to be excluded. To be honest, that yeah. seems like a pretty reasonable and sensible outcome of this, by, by the way things are developing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, well, that's something we can look forward to. But now to Italy, where the government of newish Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney proposes to impose its general Italy first, make Italy great again vibe upon foreign filmmakers. Many Hollywood productions are lured to Italy, not merely by the weather, scenery and food, but by hefty tax incentives, which Maloney wants to cut if productions do not hire an Italian director, screenwriter or lead actor. Deputy Culture Minister Lucia Borgonzoni is especially vexed by the idea of non Italians playing Italians, which suggests she has grievously misapprehended what acting is. Um, Alessio, speaking on behalf of the entire Italian nation, uh, as you are, do you care one way or the other if somebody who isn't Italian plays an Italian? I do, actually. Really? Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, let's put, let's be absolutely clear. I can reveal a monocle. If that happens, I'm the first one to go back and go on, end up on movies, right? <laughs> be- because I, I, I can speak both languages, sort of. I mean, my mum actually has problems with my Italian. Um, and, and of course, my English is, is barely breaking even. So, but, but, but I do think um, that there is an enormous, so it depends, it depends how you look at it. As, as someone who follows Italian cinema, Mm. Italian cinema has incredibly high standards, um, True and and so and so the talent is there, right? It is presented into a policy uh, set of suggestions that makes you feel very uncomfortable, but. I do think that there is a genuine case for a sufficient, um, sufficiently wide 
pool of talent of acting in Italy that now is pretty comfortable in Italian and English that if there is an Italian role, you should look into that. The reason why it doesn't happen is mostly because of Hollywood politics, um, you know, who your agent is and who you work with rather than a genuine effort to do so. Because even those Italians that work into international productions, it's because mostly they've been there for a while. Mm. But they are not in there in the Italian context that wouldn't represent the top, top, top end of the spectrum but those who could be in the acting place. Uh, Isabel, is the problem with this policy not that people will just go, all right then, we'll make our film somewhere else? Like Ireland, for example. For example. Where they do speak English and it may not have the same range of, of scenes. But, you know, if you're making a kind of sci-fi fantasy, you know, why should you have Italians in it? You know, you <laughs> might. It rather depends what you're making. And well, there if, are, if you're making an Italian sci-fi fantasy. Well, then you presumably you would do it in Italy and have Italians. But if you're Hollywood and you're just looking for some congenial tax um, haven to make your movies, there are plenty of countries that are very keen to offer that kind of thing. And they do have... Um, uh, technical skills. They do have. Uh, they they do have people who are used to servicing uh, international productions. So I think it's. It sort of feels to me like a little bit of a nationalist kind of bit of a flag wave well, this is, from a nationalist prime minister. This is what I was wondering, Alessio. Do we think that Giorgia Maloney is making a pure-hearted attempt to protect Italy's tremendous cinematic heritage here, or does this just look like a, well, a flag-waving stunt? No, it is definitely a flag-waving stunt, the way it is articulated. <laughs> Again, I don't think it draws upon uh, a wrong type of logic because a lot of what it's referred to, at least in the, in, in the, in, in the text that is debated moment is that productions that want to go to make movies in Italy about Italy and therefore there is an element in there of do you want to portray the place then you use also stuff to make it more authentic the same way you want a building in Venice then you might want also a Venetian if you can find them um, and which you can in, in that context so so in that sense I think there's a, a, a distinction that one needs to draw as I said, between how the legal provision has been debated, which is debated very much that populist sort of flag-waving character that under that undertoned and underwrites this government, and the basic idea around which, which is not something that is not particularly sensible in that sense. It draws on a specific talent, but the way it presents is a bit you know, up in your face and, 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 and will sort of force people, well, then I might actually go somewhere else and make the same movie in that sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I did want to ask you both uh, just finally, because it is a related question. I'm quite curious. because I'm not especially bothered myself if somebody plays a part from somewhere other than where that actor happens to be, except in the case of accents, which is where people can get really found out. And I did want to ask if either of you had any especially favourite bad cinematic accents. The two I would advance, one, obviously, uh, as an Australian, a shout-out to Meryl Streep uh, playing Lindy Chamberlain um, mm. and her much-mocked attempt to enunciate the phrase, a dingo's got my baby. But I, I, also, <laughs> I, I also have, I treasure the memory many years ago of happening to be 
in Ireland when the film Michael Collins was yeah. released uh, and going to see it in a Dublin cinema. And it's actually quite a good film. I later realised when I saw it again in different circumstances. But the, the dramatic effect is rather ruined by a cinema full of gleeful Irish people falling out of their chairs every time Julia Roberts spoke. Um, do either of you have a particularly favourite bad cinematic oh, accent? Mary Poppins. Oh, Dick Van Dyke's Dick Cockney. Van, Dick Van Dyke's Cockney. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's up there w- mm. with the best. Sean Connery, Hunterford of Toba. <laughs> I hate, I mean, that, no, that, and you can't beat that. You cannot possibly beat them. Pivoting splendidly, Alessio, to your expertise in naval affairs as well. That Did that really upset the proper naval head, Sean Connery? Uh, no, no, it's fine. I mean, you want him. It's iconic. You don't touch the Hunterford of Toba. You love it as it is. Alessio Patalan. And Isabel Hilton, thank you both for joining us. This year, finally on today's show, marks the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. And whilst many are aware of the brutal violence and sectarian tensions which beset the country during the US occupation, it is rare to hear stories that focus on the lives of those within the conflict. That's what inspired the director Maysoon Pachachi to create Our River, Our Sky. The film is set in Baghdad in 2006 and explores the everyday bravery of the victims of war whose collective stories are punctuated by the destruction of their beloved home. Monocle's Monica Lillis sat down with Maysoon here at Midori House ahead of the film's UK release to find out more. The film is a collective story, really. It's an ensemble film of intersecting stories which play out over the last week of 2006 in Baghdad, in Iraq. This was a time of intense sectarian violence you left the house in the morning and you never knew know whether you were going to come back alive or not. And somehow you had to find a way of kind of renewing a sense of fragile hope every day. They got you out of bed and out the door to do what you needed to do. And I was interested in um, really focusing on the lives of people rather than um, the blood in the streets and the, you know, the, occupation, the American occupation and all that. This, it takes place three years after the uh, invasion of Iraq the US-led invasion of Iraq. Because I think in war stories or war zones, where people are largely portrayed as victims, if there's any sympathy for them at all. And that's a kind of abstraction. It makes it very difficult for an audience to kind of relate to those people. You know, they, they can feel sorry for them or whatever, but they don't identify with them. And I was very keen to really just present the characters as characters trying to live a normal life in very extraordinary circumstances and and dangerous circumstances. And the basic structure of the film is quite different from usual films. It doesn't have a main central character with a main central story and everything else serves that. It's not like that. Everybody's story is important. I didn't want the kind of hierarchy where this was the hero or the heroine and everybody else was kind of marginal. So that's the story. And Our River, Our Sky comes really out of the dialogue of one of the characters who, when her child is at school and and the bus driver, the school bus driver, has been killed, she realizes that she needs to think about their safety. You know, she's been fooling herself, you know, preventing her child from going out onto the street by herself because a lot of kids were getting kidnapped then and so forth. And, uh, and keeping the news from her, not allowing her to watch television and all of this business. Um, but actually the child knows a lot more than she lets on to her mother because she's trying to protect her mother. And uh, 
when this business happens, when the bus driver, the school bus driver gets killed, that character, Sarah, who's a writer, decides she should investigate leaving the country. And at the end of it, she takes her child to the river in Baghdad, the Tigris River, which is the first time that the child has seen the river and so forth. And they decide that, no, they're going to stay in this country. They're not going a place, even if it uh, doesn't have snipers and it doesn't have bombs and it doesn't have... They don't, this is theirs. It's their river, their streets, their, their houses, their palm trees. They're staying. Yeah. So it's our river, our sky. You talk about the human stories behind war, and I think that is particularly poignant, you know, given mm-hmm. what's happening in the world at the moment. Could you just go into a little bit more detail about how important it is, not just for you, for the, this film, but for other filmmakers, to tell stories behind war without depicting bloodshed? For me, what's really important about it is that you're not just depicting people as victims. I mean, what you see on the news, for example, is the aftermath of a bomb blast and a mother beating her chest and crying for her son. And who is she? And who is the boy who died? You don't know. You never hear these things. And so it's difficult to to relate. It's difficult to relate to people. So my aim, if you like, in this is to portray people, ordinary people like us, but happen to be caught up in these circumstances that are different, different. And what I've had as a response from a lot of audiences is... I found myself thinking, well, what would I do if I was in that situation? And this business of being able to actually put yourself in the shoes of other people, I think is really important. Mm. Uh, Because sometimes it seems like, oh, well, they have wars over there, but we're not like that. You know, it's an othering, which is crazy. And yes, it's particularly relevant at the moment. Mm. This special release marks the 20th anniversary of um, the occupation of Iraq. What do you hope this new kind of renewed international release of the film will tell audiences about that time? Well, I think, you know, when the shooting stops, I mean, if you're sitting here in London, you might be, and you might have been on the demonstrations that were against the war, but it was waged anyway. You never get to hear what happened in a war that was carried out in your name as a British citizen, for example. So, and people, and when the shooting stops, they think, well, okay, it's, everything's okay. It's not okay. There is a, an aftermath. The society is completely disrupted and connections between people, I mean, hist- connections between people, people who've lived all their life next to somebody from another religion or whatnot, all of that got shattered. And so people were, it was like a wrecking ball was taken to the whole society. And um, it's like, I often sort of say what Iraq became after that was like a, a mirror you're holding. It slips out of your hands and it shatters into hundreds of pieces. And if you're lucky, you can stick it back together again into the shape of the mirror. But it's fractured. And that's, that's what Iraq is like, was like in this time. And it still is. I mean, I was there in... Last time I was there was in March last year to show the film and also to give some workshops, documentary film workshops. The young people are amazing. I mean, there was a massive uprising in 2019 which went uh, against corruption, against foreign intervention in the country and, and so forth. Largely started by young people, but joined by everybody in Iraq, different and different religions, different sects from the countryside, from the cities and so forth, widespread all over the place. And there was still some of that feeling of, of power, empowerment 
that people felt that, that well, this is, this is our country. This is our country, you know. I met lots and lots of people who had new projects. You know, they were opening art galleries and, places, and meeting places where poetry got read and, you know, other kinds of, well, initiatives, really. And, and it was people, you know, younger people who were doing mm. this. And that's what gives me hope. That was Mesun Pachachi, director of Our River, Our Sky, speaking to Monica Lillis. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Alessio Patalano. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>